From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. When I started blogging, I noticed a lot of my colleagues and friends getting book deals. And I said, oh, maybe this is something I should do. Um, But I really wasn't sure at the same time. It wasn't something that I actively pursued. Um, So I reached out to an agent and I said, hey, I read this thing that you, you know, you were interviewed somewhere and, um, you know, you were taking like pictures or whatever. So do you think I could write a cookbook? And I remember the agent coming back and saying that I don't think your work deserves a voice or you don't have anything like interesting to say. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart. You just heard from Nick Sharma. Now, not all of our guests start out in professional kitchens or even in food careers. Some, like this week's guests, come from entirely other professions before finding their way into the kitchen. Now, Nick Sharma loved the creativity of being in the kitchen, growing up in Bombay, the city on India's west coast now known as Mumbai. Nick eventually moved to America to study pharmacy, not food, but it was food that helped him discover and acclimate to his new home. Later, he began to capture his cooking adventures on his blog, A Brown Table, which won the International Association of Culinary Professionals' best photo-based blog two years in a row. Today, Nick writes the A Brown Kitchen food column for the San Francisco Chronicle and just published his first cookbook, Season. Now, Nick's life has been heavily influenced by cookbooks. He writes that he loved flipping through them with eager envy that perhaps one day he could become a cook. And he's formed close relationships with cookbook authors and mentors like Diana Henry and Julia Tertian. Now, Nick says his book and recipes are a collection of flavors from his two worlds, India and America. And you'll see influences from his Indian roots, though this is not a traditional Indian cookbook, as well as from his time spent in Ohio, from the American South by way of his husband, to the unquestionable influence of his now home, California. We sat down with Nick recently at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk about how he proudly tells his own story— that of a gay immigrant, through food, working to, as he writes, erase labels like ethnic and exotic. We also talked to Nick about his home cooking first approach and what he looks for in a cookbook. Plus, today we're stopping by Oaktown Spice Shop to learn more about some of the spices in Nick's book and chatting with Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. All of that this week as we talk cookbooks with Nick Sharma. Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. So you say at the outset of your book, you describe it as an immigrant story and a love story told through food. And you say, I'm an immigrant and I tell my story through food. Yeah. So I uh, was born in Bombay, um, which is now called Mumbai. Right. But I still say Bombay because when I left, it was still Bombay. So it's hard for me to kind of make that switch. Sure. Um but yeah, I grew up in Bombay and then I moved to Cincinnati, Ohio for school, uh, where I studied genetics. Um, and then I moved to DC where I worked at Georgetown Hospital. Um, and then I also went to public policy school at Georgetown, uh, did health economics and policy. And then we moved to California where I ended up quitting everything and getting into food full time. And so food was always sort of a a through line, I think, through your life. And we see that really clearly in your cookbook. But growing up in India, food was there. And then, you know, particularly later in life, you sort of, I think, felt the pull even stronger. You talk about working long hours in D.C. and coming home and feeling energized in the kitchen. What what was it sort of like to decide to make that leap and move fully into food from, you know, a career in medicine of sorts? Yeah, it was definitely scary. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think... um, 
what happened was I was in such an academic atmosphere for the longest time and I knew nothing else. Like I went to school and I went straight into research and then moved to research again. And then when, you know, just like fluctuated back and forth between research and academia. And it's a very different environment from for-profit organizations where you work. And so I, I loved it, but at the same time, I also wanted to do something creative. And growing up as a kid, I wanted to work as a cook, um, as a chef. And my mom worked in hospitality and she said, no, I don't think it's for you. I don't think you have the personality to sit in, um, like a cold room and peel onions all day because that's what they do for the first few years of their lives. Your fingers will bleed. Right. It's just not you. Yeah. Um, so I said, okay, fine. Um, and then when I was in, when I moved to America, I was free for the first time. I was not living with my parents, so I was free to do what I wanted. And so one of the cool things for me, since I grew up in, um, I wasn't wealthy. I didn't grow up wealthy. And so we still didn't have enough money for me to go travel the world. And so cooking was a way that kind of opened up a lot of new doors for me Mm. to see what the world was all about. And so when I came to America, um, I was also on a tight student budget. Um, and so what happened was, even though I know a lot of people say like the Midwest doesn't have a lot like of international flair going on for it, uh, it's surprising what you can find even in a college town like in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, I would get to experience a lot of new cultures and food, um, like Greek food, Italian food. These were things that weren't strange, not strange, but they were new to me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um in their own way. And I was experiencing that and it was seductive. Yeah. Because you're experiencing the world through taste. And I think anything that's either visual or that affects your senses or like taste is very empowering. It pulls you in. Right. And so that started to draw me in more into the food, into food. And then I started thinking about Oh, what, how could I do this and have fun with it? And that's when I started blogging. You also include this eight page, um, spread at the beginning of the book with these beautiful macro photos of different spices and ingredients. How did you decide to sort of make this flavor glossary, as you call it, um, the lead in to your cookbook? Sure. So one of the things that I always wanted to do was to empower a reader, a home cook with um, like a tool, so to speak, mm. uh, that makes it easy and useful for them to find things. And so one of the, another thing that I observed of the past, of ever since I got into food writing, writing recipes and creating them is that a lot of times people, uh, like a reader will look at the list of ingredients in a cookbook, in a recipe, and it comes across as being monu- like a monumental Herculean task to do it right and even though the instructions might be simple and not time consuming and so that's one of the things i wanted to do with spices because at the end of the day how do i make it easy for people and empower a cook to be confident enough to go to the store and buy an ingredient without having to ask someone for help right um and so the images because visuals just work so well with people i decided let's do close-up macro shots as tight as possible to the spice so people can identify things like um, cumin, anise, and fennel that all look like each other. But if you look closely side by side, they look very different. One's greener than the other. They smell different. They taste different. And so I'm hope, I hope that the visual flavor glossary that we created kind of just makes it easy for people. 
Yeah. And you also recommend specific spice shops in the back of the mm-hmm. book, depending on where people live, you know, maybe able to access yeah. those specific stores. Um, if you're not able to go to a store that sort of specializes in high quality fresh spices, how do you sort of navigate buying good quality spices at your grocery store? Sure. So I think it comes back to the question of what is access, right? Like, should people mm-hmm. go to the farmer's market or go to like a grocery store or something that's mass produced. Right. I think at the end of the day, I want people to go with their, whatever works for your budget, go with that. So I try to include stores that, that I am familiar with and I know are good. So like Oakdown Spice in Oakland. Right. Um, so I wanted some stores on the West Coast, the North, the South, the East, the West, everything in there. And are there one or two, a couple of spices that you feel like people should be experimenting with more? Maybe something that you have highlighted in the flavor glossary that home cooks could sort of try out a bit? Yeah, so I think one of the exciting things to do is to always start with something that you're familiar with and then break away from that. So something like if you like heat, you start with chili peppers, right? And so there are so many different kinds. And I try to do a couple of different things in the book. So you could use Marasha or Aleppo um, and play with those because they're dried in such different ways. Um, right. some, you know, one has a smoky flavor, one sweeter. Um, and then you could also just play with salt. Right. And go through different kinds of salt. So I don't really use a lot of kosher salt. I know everyone in food writing in America does. <laughs> yeah. I didn't do that specifically because kosher salt is not easily available outside America. Mm. And it comes up as a question with my readers who cook in different countries. So I use fine sea salt everywhere and I measure that out. Not the most popular thing to do. <laughs> uh, but it's not easily available. So I can't push people to do it. Start with these as starting points and then move on. Sweetness, you could use jaggery, right? You move from sugar, you could use pomegranate molasses to jaggery, which is probably the most unrefined form of sugar, which is, again, more complex than in taste. Right. Now, how do you describe your style of cooking? I know there's a lot of influence from Indian. (laughs) (laughs) I think lazy. But certainly you have influence from from your childhood and from Indian cuisine. Your, your husband, your partner is Southern and there's a yeah. lot of Southern influence in your, in your food too. And I think that's true both of, you know, your blog, your column yeah. and of, of your cookbook. Mm-hmm. But we see recipes like chickpea battered fried okra that's sort of reminiscent of a pakora or an Indian, you know, fried vegetable yeah. fritter. Um, but it's okra and yeah. there's buttermilk in the batter. Yeah. Um, or you have like the curry leaf popcorn chicken. So yeah. these really interesting things that feel very, these really interesting recipes that feel really accessible, but heavily influenced from components of your life and your identity. Yeah. I think one of the most amazing things about living is having to experience and this sounds so philosophical which I'm not uh, (laughs) but I feel that's one of the like I'm so fortunate to have had um, access to things that a lot of people haven't had Um, and so I want to make the most of it Um, and I so it turned out I married someone from the south it wasn't like a plan we fell in love and I married him sure Uh, he likes okra and but his mom's from the south and she hates okra okay uh, but right. he loves okra so she won't cook okra for him i think begrudgingly she'll cook okra but um so i cook okra for him and um he also likes deep fried i think it's i hate saying it but i feel it's like a southern thing it's deep fried or it's it's everything that's comforting oh. right like southern food is comforting mm-hmm. and so um I feel like in that particular example that you brought up, the buttermilk kind of gives you a much more thicker coat. It adds acidity to it. Um, so it cuts the richness of the oil. 
Um, so these are things that I pay attention to when I'm creating a recipe is looking as to what I've really enjoyed about something. How can I bring that in? And then at the same time, how do I make it representative of who I am or what I've experienced or I love? Um, and so that's when all these, I guess, these factors come into play. Right. And you've talked a lot about representation and particularly when it comes to your photography, um, which I think is something that you have a very unique style of photography. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach to photography and sure. particularly the decision you made, I think, early on when you were blogging and starting mm -hmm. to take photos of having yourself in the photos, your hands um, being sure. there, being present? So there were a couple of things, some were intentional, some were just natural. I can't change how I look, right? And so the color of my skin is not going to change. So that's just what it is. Um, but there were certain things that I, um, when I started to photograph was that food in general, photography tends to go in a certain way. Even now there's a trend. Like you look now, I guarantee you there will be a bunch of photos somewhere out there. Everything's right now on a gray bluish background. That is the thing right now. That's right. the most popular thing. Um, when I started photographing food, AM self-taught, so I didn't know a lot. Right. But a question that my dad, who is a photographer and used to be in advertising, asked me, how do you want to represent yourself or identify yourself? And do you want to stand out or do you want to be flowing? Sure. Right. And so then that comes to another question is, what do you want to offer to the world? And so I, in that sense, I really like to cook. It's the reason why I left my job in science to go into cooking and enjoy the process. So I really wanted to pay homage to a lot of the simple things that happen in the kitchen. It doesn't have to be something fancy, but even um, like adding sugar to something over the stove or you're squeezing a lemon. How do I cap capture that, just that moment um, and give it like it's due course. And I feel like a, a lot of times in the past, those things don't really get called and just something so simple doesn't get attention. So if I could do that in my own way um, and be proud of it. So that was one thing. The second thing was when I worked as a pastry cook in Santa Clara, mm -hmm. I had never worked in a kitchen before. And so I did that. Um, I was interacting with people who were coming from everywhere. Uh, different economic backgrounds. Some were rich, some were really poor. Um, some couldn't speak English. Some were Asian, some were Mexican, uh, Vietnamese, um, Indian. And so it was really interesting just to see this different side that was never in the front of the kitchen. Right. Uh, or at least the front of the restaurant. And so I said, well, there must be like a way for me to represent what was going on. Um, in my own way. And so for me at that point, I thought photography was the best way to do it. And so I st started photographing myself to kind of, you know, like I said, pay homage to the technique. But I also knew I was brown. So maybe in that way, it was kind of um, highlighting that this, these are, there are people who don't look like you or sound like you that are actually making a food and bringing it, not bringing it to you, but who are making it for you. Yeah. And I think that representation issue is is very clear and very important and also very prevalent in the cookbook industry, right? I mean, yeah. historically, cookbooks have been written by white male chefs. Um, did you face challenges or obstacles in the pursuit of your cookbook deal in creating this cookbook um, as you sort of thought about bringing some of the light to representation issues through that work? 
Yeah. So when I started blogging, I noticed a lot of my colleagues and friends getting book deals. And I said, mm -hmm. oh, maybe this is something I should do. Um, but I really wasn't sure at the same time. It wasn't something that I actively pursued. Um, so I reached out to an agent and I said, hey, I read this thing that you, you know, you were interviewed somewhere and, um, you know, you were taking like pictures or whatever. So do you think I could write a cookbook? And I remember the agent coming back and saying that I don't think your work deserves a voice or you don't have hmm. anything like interesting to say. Wow. Um, so I said, um, they're probably right. Um, because at the same time, I don't want to be built up. And then have this weird like perception of who I am and not actually deliver. So maybe the agent's right. Uh, so I gave up the idea and said, well, I don't think this is like a thing because agents know best. And then a couple of years later, an agent reached out to me. Um, in between, I did speak to a lot of agents, but they had contacted me and I wasn't really sure if this was something I wanted to pursue and we didn't really connect. It's agent uh, uh, reached out to me and we connected and bonded really quickly and she said, I think you should write a book. And I said, no, nah, I don't think so. And she mm. said, no, you should. And I said, no, I don't think so. And so we went back and forth. And then finally, I caved in, so to speak. And uh, we worked on a proposal and went out. I was lucky that, it, you know, I landed up with an amazing publisher that's local mm -hmm. in uh, San Francisco. And so Chronicle Books has been extremely supportive and investing in my career as a writer. Um, so it's worked out. Yeah. Uh, but there are challenges. I think a large portion, as I see it, uh, from the chef world, it is usually male chefs. From the blogging world, it's usually white women. Yeah. Uh, to, and I'm being very honest about that. So there is a space, and I think there is room for people who are not getting those, you know, a chance. So it would be really cool one day that these things aren't an issue to talk about. Right. Right. It's not exciting for me to always walk into a room and then have to, discuss this right but um it has to be discussed now yeah i think it has to be because it hasn't traditionally been that way yeah. and i think books like yours and blogs like yours and voices like yours are sort of leading us in that direction i mean the amount of praise and recognition that your book has garnered and we're talking now before your book is even on the bookshelves oh my gosh. <laughs> um, is just i think a testament to how powerful your work is and how important your voice is in the space yeah and i think it is really important especially in a field that's so driven by art mm. you would want diversity and richness to share things that are not the norm right right and so to cut those voices out is i think you're actually just harming the industry as a whole uh, and in order for the industry to continue and bring change um which is important, but you also want those people to come and tell their stories, uh, share those things that you'll never probably eat if you don't visit those countries or that small nook of a region. Like I feel one of the things that so, um, Indian food in media in general is lacking is regional. Yeah. And I try to do my best to never say the word Indian because I feel it is... Um, I then wash away all the other cultures that are existent in India. Right. And so I think those are the kind of voices that we need more of. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Nick Sharma, author of Season. Of course, fresh, top-notch ingredients are one way to make a dish that looks, smells, and tastes amazing. But spices, fresh and quality ones, are another way to truly transform ingredients. 
As Nick writes in his household, spices and aromatics are treasured and revered. In our ingredient interlude segment today, executive producer Allison Sullivan stops by Oakland's Oaktown Spice Shop to talk with Erica Perez about some of the spices Nick features in his book and how you can introduce them into more of your cooking. Erica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I first wanted to talk a a little bit about Is your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit ProstateOnePerDay.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. About some spices that uh, Nick Sharma uh, mentions in his book. The first one was cardamom. Cardamom is um, used a lot in baking and sweet things. And that's kind of people's first thought, I think, in the States when they think about cardamom is um, in a cookie or a shortbread or maybe in a beverage, like a hot beverage, uh, maybe even in tea. It also has a, a menthol, sort of a cooling um, property to it, which lends itself to um, really delicious savory uses as well. So um, it's a feature in curries and also just in any kind of spicy um, dish. Uh, it doesn't necessarily actually cool your, your mouth, but it will add um, sort of a level of cooling that is really balancing and delicious. And it doesn't necessarily go sweet. It's just adding um, sort of a quote, sweet spice. It's not really a spice, but I worked with curry leaf recently. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain a little bit how that works? Um, having leaves integrate flavor into dishes versus like a ground up spice. So curry leaves are an interesting one for you to bring up. And we don't carry curry leaves because um they're one of the few things that we think don't translate well in the dried form. Um, and we just carry dried, dried things here. <laughs> so, you know, as opposed to some of the other leaves that we have, like basil and, you know, um, most of the things that would, we would call herbs are leaves. So, um, they're generally more delicate than the seed spices. Their flavors are, um, a little bit more delicate. The volatile oils are, are less. And so you want to be a little bit more delicate in your cooking of them. Um, with curry leaves, they're, you know, my favorite way to cook with curry leaves is to fry them up in oil. And, um, it's sort of like it captures that flavor and, um, sort of gets, harnesses it. It gets the best use out of it by diffusing it throughout the oil. That's not a scientific explanation. That's just my gut feeling about it. Um, but I, but yeah, and it, you know, with other leaves, um, you would never, for example, reconstitute a dried basil to make a pesto. It's really, um, going to be, you're going to har- harness the best flavor of that by putting it into like a simmering sauce or frying it in oil or adding the heat to it but um, not trying to make it back into a fresh form. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a very spicy conversation. (laughs) Sure. Thanks for having me. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. 
we love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's wonderful for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their expert teachers. And of course, personally, I love the beautifully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss upcoming classes on topics like carrying flavor, sauces and dressings, or airy, how to take advantage of air and steam in your baked goods. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now, Nick Sharma's book had us salivating from cover to cover, so executive producer Allison Sullivan and I headed to the kitchen to bring some of our favorite recipes from Nick's book to the table in this week's Into the Kitchen. Hey, Brian. Hey, Allison. Are you ready to talk about what we did today in the kitchen? Yeah, absolutely. So we were cooking from Nick Sharma's season, and we made a few things, the first of which is the curry leaf popcorn chicken. It's just like popcorn chicken you've had before, but with some really great twists. This recipe is a great sort of entry to his cookbook and to understand the way that he plays with flavor and spices and to see sort of the various influences uh, of his life coming to show themselves in recipes. Mm -hmm. So you would say that if someone had to make one thing from the book that really, really encapsulated the book, it would be the curry leaf popcorn chicken. Well, it's so hard to pick just one thing because there's so many great recipes here, but I do think it's a great introductory recipe. The process is you start by toasting some spices, um, which is a process that we see throughout his book and that's pretty traditional um, in Indian cooking and that draws out some of the oils from the spice and pulls out some of the flavor. And then those just get thrown right into the blender with buttermilk. So you're making a buttermilk marinade, but you're infusing that with some toasted cardamom, some toasted coriander, some toasted cumin seeds, some toasted black peppercorns. It's this really great spiced, peppery buttermilk marinade that's then kicked up a notch in the blender by serrano chilies um, and then some scallions um, blended in there as well. And that just goes in the fridge for about four hours with your cut up chicken pieces, marinates, super simple to get that going. And then after that, we're working flavor in even more in his recipe um, when we made the the dredging mixture that you're going to actually bread the batter, or sorry, that you're going to bread the marinated chicken pieces in. So we use some of those same toasted spices right into the flour, um, and that's going to flavor the flour. And that's something he talks about a lot in his book, is he thinks about seasoning through all the elements of the recipe and building the seasoning in throughout. So then we're going to fry. Let's get frying. Um, They'll fry pretty quickly because we've cut the chicken into one-inch cubes. So, you know, four to five minutes on average per batch. And then Nick does another great thing at the end of this recipe that I love. He takes curry leaves and sliced Thai chilies and throws them in the oil after you've fried all the chicken. And you get these nice crispy curry leaves and Thai chilies to sort of top the popcorn chicken with. And then we serve this with a couple sauces. So he recommends that you could serve it with ranch. Um, or with hot sauce, but he has two recipes in the book that make for really great sauces. So one is his maple vinegar syrup, which is super simple to make. It's maple syrup, apple cider vinegar, and some spice. That's it. Which is great because it's like that chicken and waffles, like what you love about that, but just with you skipped the waffle this time. Totally. It feels exactly like that, but, you know, with some great Indian spice. And then the second sauce we made for this recipe uh, is one of his pantry staples, which is the hot green chutney. So this is the spicier sort of sauce you could serve with this popcorn chicken. Um, And it's a great chutney that comes together really easily in the blender. The popcorn chicken was amazing. Uh, Brian, can you 
talk a little bit about what we drank along with the popcorn chicken? Yeah. So Nick actually has a great um, section in the book season of drinks, and it's the pomegranate Moscow mule. So we thought this would go really um, great with some of the spice that we were getting from the popcorn chicken to sort of balance that out and just super refreshing. So it's a it's a traditional Moscow mule in many ways, right? We're starting with a base of unflavored vodka. We have some uh, good quality ginger beer here, but then he's adding pomegranate juice, fresh pomegranate juice and pomegranate molasses uh, into there, as well as some maple syrup to sweeten it up a bit and give it a little bit um, of a maple quality and some lime juice and a lime peel for garnish. This is a great drink for fall. And he actually says it's a staple at his Thanksgiving table. Great. Well, thanks, Brian. This was so much fun today to be in the kitchen. Um, We had some really great, easy, I would definitely say, uh, things from Nick's beautiful book. We would actually like to hear and see what you guys are making at home. What recipes are really catching your eye from Nick's uh, book season? Please tag us, share with us, um, use the hashtag TalkCookBooks, and we'll check it out. And now back to our conversation with Nick Sharma. Now, you write in a book that your parents would let you experiment a little bit in the kitchen. You had cookbooks around your house. Were there cookbooks around growing up that you remember your, your parents cooking from, your grandparents cooking from? Uh, good question. So my mother actually <laughs> does not like to cook at all. Um, or when, she- when did you first sort of um, become exposed to cookbooks? Um, so my mother had a cabinet in the living room, which okay. um, had these binders with newspaper cuttings, magazine cuttings of recipes. And I think her goal was to kind of practice and make those things as as a young married woman. Um, didn't really pan out so much because she just doesn't have the patience to do it. I think she also gets frustrated when she comes and stays with me because she's like, why would you do all this? It's just so much work. Um, but um, I, that was my first exposure to recipes. And then she had okay. a couple of books, not too many, um, because... I grew up in India and in India, you do have cookbooks, but it's not it at that time. It wasn't a thing. Uh, the books are also, you know, um, like the, I remember having, um, I think it is Nippon, Nippon, a Japanese brand uh-huh. that used to make a rice cooker. Right. And yes. So we had a rice cooker and I remember that cookbook, uh, that had, um, there was like a chicken, like a roast chicken thighs. Like, okay. So those are some of the... Me- and I think I actually brought that book back from India because, again, she doesn't use it. Like the book that came with the rice with cooker. With the thing. So yeah. like, uh, like there were like all these like interesting things. And sure, she used them. And then right. um, ovens are not a standard device that is in houses. So you would get um, like a desk desktop oven. Okay. Is that the right word? Sure. Um, yeah. Countertop oven. Yeah. Countertop sort of, oven. Yeah. And right. so she had one of those. And so that came with its own recipe book. Um but yeah, so like those were the kind of things that I were exposed. It was very old school back then. Yeah. And then, uh, those were the things I knew of. But most of my cooking was learned watching my mom or my maternal grandmother. Okay. And then now I know you have a pretty significant cookbook collection. Are there particular authors or books that have inspired you or that were particularly helpful as you put your first cookbook together? I think um, everybody knows I love Diana. So Diana, <laughs> Diana Henry. Henry yeah. Yeah. I mean, she has a, from what I've heard, she has a crazier cookbook collection she than mine. She does. I think, what, 4,000 she told us when yeah, she was Yeah, and here? I'll get to see it in November because I'm staying with her. Oh, how nice. Yeah. Um, Maybe she'll even like give you two to go or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she can spare a few. <laughs> um, she might kill us. <laughs> yeah. But uh, da- I have all of Diana's books because I mm-hmm. feel um, one of the things she so beautifully succeeds is to make 
she brings flavor into the kitchen with elegance. It's like, it's mm-hmm. easy. You don't think twice about like, oh my God, that doesn't come to my mind. And then Nigella, who I'm also a big fan of, yeah, and she's Nigella amazing Lawson. too. Nigella also has this like, let's just do this. Let's not make it difficult, right? right. Um, those I think are like my two all-time favorite authors because they bring this, they draw you in. Yeah. Um, another is um, Julia Tertian. Yeah. Um, she, again, has this like, keep it easy, simple, uncomplicated. Um, yeah. And then you have authors like Madhu Jaffrey, mm-hmm. who did, uh, who basically that set the stage, I will say, for Indian authors like me to come in and be a part of the conversation. Again, Madhu Jaffrey made it accessible. Right. For a lot of people. Uh, let's see. And then, um, Nigel Slater. Yes. Yeah. Um, I feel like Nigel Slater's, um, Again, like it's seasonal, but it's beautiful. Right. And his words are always so poetic. So, yeah. Right. It seems like I'm influenced by a lot of British authors. Yeah, I know. We, we, <laughs> we have named a lot of British authors. Um, but yeah, I think Diana Henry and Nigel Slater both just have such great prose to yeah. contained within their books. Yeah. I think, and that's what's charming about them is that you think more about the ambience, the environment and the emotions around food when you read their work. Yeah. That's so important. It's more than just a recipe. It's really the environment you're creating, Correct, the yeah. people you're sharing a meal with. Yeah. Um, than it, I mean, I think that that's at the end of the day. I'm not going to say like food is going to change your life magically at the moment. But in that moment when you're eating, at least you want your emotions to be calm and relaxed and enjoyable. Right. If you could finish this sentence for me, how would you finish it? To me, cookbooks mean... A big collection. <laughs> a big collection, yes. <laughs> I, like <laughs> I like that answer. I like that answer. I think cookbooks are... Now they become like a statement. Mm. Uh, but the cookbooks that I'm most intrigued by are the ones that I learn something from. I might not cook a recipe from them, uh, but they're the ones that I'll either learn a, be- a piece of history okay, um, or something new. And off late, I find myself turning to books from the past. Like Jane Brickson right. is something that I'm reading right now. Right. Um, just because there's so much to learn. And having not grown up in the West, it's my way of learning the past and the history of where I am now. Yeah. Well, we like to end with these little games. So I wanted to propose a little game to you. Um, So we were thinking since you have a background in science and some sort of like, (laughs) I don't think it'll be too difficult. Okay. Um, Some connection to medicine, but Uh let's say you could, you had to prescribe some recipes from your cookbook season to people who come in with various things happening in their lives. Right. So I'll throw out a couple ideas and maybe you could suggest if someone's, you know, someone's having this um, in their life, okay. a recipe that they could turn to in your book. Okay. Um, so let's start with somebody celebrating a birthday. Where, where do they turn in season um, for a recipe? For a birthday. So if you don't want a cake, I would say make the ice cream. So make the jaggery mm-hmm. ice cream from the book. Um, and that's something that I do for my own birthday. I usually just make ice cream because I love ice cream. Okay. Yeah. I also have to know that you're our first guest who's brought us food. You brought us some baked oh, really? goods. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, you get like a thousand extra credit points there. <laughs> um, how about someone going through heartbreak? Maybe you just had a bad breakup. Popcorn for, uh, the popcorn chicken. Okay. Yeah. yeah and it's the curry, curry leaf yeah, popcorn I think the chicken. Fried food yeah. is just, yeah, it gets a bad rap, rap. I mean, rap, but I feel, um, it's comforting. I mean, that's why we like it. Right? Yeah. Right. 
How about a new baby? To feed the baby or the mother? Um, to feed the probably not the baby. I mean, maybe, maybe, but okay. most likely to the feed mother. the mother. The uh, all the cocktails in the book. Yeah, because you probably like once you've had the baby, you kind of want to need your alone time. So get a cocktail from the book. Do the if you like gin, you could probably do the pineapple serrano gin. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you want to do like a weekend away from all the craziness, leave the baby behind with the husband or the wife, <laughs> right. uh, depending on who you are. Um. Do the Bellini with the cardamom and the peppercorns. Yeah. Um, Which I have yet to try, but is like one of the things that really caught my eye. It's oh, really good. Okay. Yeah. You don't have a baby though, right? Yet. I don't. <laughs> no, no. But I, I am craving that Bellini. Okay. Um, okay. Last one. How about someone who you have a friend, they've just published their first cookbook. The stress is off. Maybe they're finished their book tour. You're going to send them a recipe. What will it be? What would it be? If it's something savory... Um, actually, let's start with sweet. If okay. it's something, because that's always easy. If you start with something sweet, do the sweet potato babinka from the book. Uh, I feel that's the maple syrup in there. I love maple syrup, and I feel that's just a good way to relax. Yeah. Um, if you want something savory, do the sweet potato fries with the basil yogurt sauce. I think okay. that's that's like a good. Yogurt. I feel like yogurt calms people down. Yeah. So then you need that after you do a book. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. And so I, I have a feeling you'll be making this for yourself soon. So. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Congratulations on the new book. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining us. Thank you for Nick. having me. This was fun. Thank you. And now it's time for this week's In the Vault, where we're headed to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack about influential Indian cookbook authors. Hi, Celia. How are you? Fine, thanks. Great. So we just sat down with Nick Sharma to talk about his first cookbook, Season. And I'm so hoping exciting. you have something. Yeah, it's a beautiful <laughs> book. Um, I'm hoping you have something to share with us today. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about his predecessors because, okay. um, you know, Indian cuisine, I love it. Yes. Um, and it's very easy to make. People are afraid because there are so many ingredients, but oftentimes you just sort of throw them in and there's a wide screw-up range. Right. You, you can put a little too many spices, a little too few. It's probably still going to taste really good. <laughs> so people should not be afraid of it. Um, but there's a wonderful woman named um, Nilifer King who wrote a book called My Bombay Kitchen. Okay. And that was really sort of the first Indian cookbook that also gave a context to a region and um, – and talks all about the Persian cuisine that influenced Parsi cooking in Bombay. And that was fascinating. Sure. So her book is really, uh, is really wonderful for that sort of context. Okay. Also, um, you know, probably the most famous Indian cookbook writer is Madhur Joffrey. Right. She's now about 82 right. and uh, is just so much fun. So wonderful. Last time she was here, uh, she was supposed to have dinner actually with Nilifer and had to cancel at the last, Nilifer had to cancel at the last minute. So we took her to La Taqueria. Okay. And, <laughs> I'll never forget the image of her cramming a taco at, you know, <laughs> at this table. Uh, but anyway, so she started out as a Bollywood star right. uh, actress and became this really renowned cookbook writer and has written fabulous books all about Indian curries, um, Indian spices, and also very simple Indian cooking. And then the last person I was going to mention um, that really is right up behind Nick is uh, this woman, Deepa, 
her her book is called Deepest Secrets. All of a sudden, uh-huh. her last name is is escaping me. But anyway, uh, her husband had diabetes, and she started cooking this sort of low carb. She called it slow carb okay. uh, food that ended up making him not have to take insulin anymore. It really cured him. Yeah, and I think the spices is really an aspect that a lot of people who aren't familiar with Indian cooking feels like sort of a, a roadblock. And so yeah. I think these books really sort of make it much more accessible to understand how you can use various spices. Exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Celia. Sure thing. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. You can find bonus content on our website, saltandspine.com, including featured recipes like the curry leaf popcorn chicken, hear an excerpt from Nick's book Season, and enter for a chance to win your own copy of Nick Sharma's Season. Now, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Plus, don't forget to rate us and leave a review. Today's program was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our theme song is created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks so much to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Erica Perez at Oaktown Spice Shop. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>